Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome two very special guests. Reverend Dr. Angelique Walker-Smith is the Senior Associate for Pan-African and Orthodox Church Engagement at Bread for the World. And Mr. Vincent Tucker is the president of the William Tucker 1624 Society, a direct descendant of the very first African-American. I've asked Angelique and Vincent to come talk with us today on Freedom Road because this past August, America entered the 400th year since enslaved people of African descent were brought onto American shores. And we need to talk about it. We need to think about this and its implications. We'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. I've been hearing from faithful listeners and folks who are just listening in for the very first time, and we just really love hearing how you are processing our conversations and also the questions that you have. So go ahead, ask your questions, and also share, share, share away with your friends. 400 years. We have been here 400 years people of African descent. Well, late August of this year, Angelique Walker-Smith and Bread for the World convened Pan-African young people who piled into a van and drove through winding highways and back roads to the land where the economic foundations, as well as the political and social frameworks of our nation, were crafted. I'm not talking about Jamestown. The point of the establishment of the first English colony on this land in 1608. No, I'm talking about Hampton, Hampton, Virginia, Point Comfort at Fort Monroe specifically. The port where the very first 20 and odd Africans were brought to these shores in chains. Now, Africans were here before that. Juan Garrido, Jean Baptiste, Pont de Soble, and Esteban were all free African explorers in North America in the 1500s with the Spanish and French. But in research for my next book, I learned that a Portuguese slave ship was on its way to Mexico when it was pirated by an English warship called the White Lion. The English stole the enslaved men and women aboard that ship and sailed them to Point Comfort at Fort Monroe, where they disembarked. To avoid responsibility for pirating, Captain Jean Rolfe lied and said the White Lion was a Dutch ship. It wasn't. It was owned by England. But think of that. We were bound for Mexico, the Mexican slave trade which had been running for decades before that. But we were stolen 
from people who stole us. So I want to bring in Reverend Dr. Walker and Vincent. Um, Reverend Dr. Walker, is it okay for me to call you Angelique on the air? Well, of course. (laughs) I just want to make sure. I know. We're friends, but, you know, I always want to give honor. I always want to give honor. Angelique and Vincent, what does 1619 mean to you? I would say for me, it gives us a clear starting point aware, very sadly and regrettably, that people of African descent found ourselves at the beginning of a narrative of racial inequities and all kinds of systemic oppression that came against us. But at the same time, we never want to leave it at the lament. We want to leave it at the point of hope. But that we since the days of even being on the continent of African, have been a great people of faith that have resisted at every turn the oppression put upon us and have always had a vision of the unborn and the born at the same time. Always living in the moment of Sankofa, lifting to the back, looking to the moment, and looking forward through the eyes of faith and hope. Wow. Thank you so much, Angelique. How about you, Vincent? Well, 1619 reminds me that our African families were kidnapped 400 years ago. Yeah. And that we were left, uh, that we left our families behind. And that's important to remember. And it also reminds me that we have been treated and judged um, over the last 400 years unjustly and treated with great prejudice without cause. And it means that we still have to prove our worth, our value to the nation, prove that we are as good, if not better in many areas. And we have done that over and over and over again with creativity through sports, through the arts, through business, integrity, and uh, you know, just a level of professionalism. So that's what it means to me, and that's what it reminds me of. How does your family intersect with the 1619 story? Well, Anthony and Isabella arrived at Old Point Comfort in 1619 off of the White Lion. And they had a child in, in 1624, William. Um, named after the plantation owner or sea captain, William Tucker. William had children, um, and the Tucker population began at that point. Wow. So you descend directly from in the Virginia colony, and that would make you a descendant of the very first African-American. Yes, in the Virginia colony. How do you hold that reality? Well, it it depends on how you're looking at it. For us growing up, we were we were trying to survive, and we have always tried to survive and and get ahead. So, because of uh, economic depression and just different things that uh, have always tried to keep us down, you knew that you were here. But it wasn't just us here; it was those around us, you know, other people of color. So, to be the first didn't bring in um, a remarkable story like, "Wow, we're the first, Not to us. Uh, because we all got here the same way and there were sacrifices before us to make sure that we continued the journey and, and to uh, be successful in this new land. And for me, it, it, it was just a little different. It didn't strike me as, hey, it's time to celebrate. Did your family know 
like, at what point were you told that your your family was descendant from that very first family? Well, my parents, particularly my father, was always trying to talk to us about our history. I had no interest as a child to hear what he had to say. <laughs> all, all I know is I couldn't play outside much. We always had to work. So, um, but we knew that there was always a cemetery there. We knew that my father would tell us that we were not enslaved, that we have always been free. And so he couldn't really take us back to the beginning because a lot of the history that we have and hold on to is oral history. Uh, because, you know, there were major fires in, in the Hampton Point Comfort area. And people just didn't hold on to our records like that. We weren't looked at as human beings. So there were stories that gave us hope and a sense of pride and to keep our heads elevated as we move forward. Wow. Thank you so much. We'll get more into your family's story in a little bit. I want to turn to Angelique and ask, how does your family intersect with the 1619 story? My history goes back to 1619 in this way. We know that in Virginia, Virginia was one of the major exporters of those who were enslaved to the rest of the U.S. And so that included Alabama. That included Montgomery, Alabama. That's where I enter into the story. My family is from a place called Little Texas outside of Tuskegee, Alabama. In Little Texas, in that rural community, you will find four or five churches near to where the land is of my family. Three of those churches that are most proximitous to the land in question are white churches. And there is a liberation church, African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, Pine Grove to be exact, that my family helped to build in that same community. Well, right up the road is the White Methodist Church. At the White Methodist Church is a place, is a marker, a historic marker of Alabama that this was a campsite. Well, that's not the total truth. Everyone knows that that was also the site of the slave auction. That was also the site of public lynchings in that area. And so right there in the same space, you know, people grew up with the tara of being sharecroppers and the rest in that community of what was those things at a church, much like what you find, sadly, in the Amara castles in Ghana, the place of no return. In many respects, that was a place of no return because people were lynched and their bodies and their mind and their soul were sold to the highest bidder on the location of a church. Do you know the time? Like, do you have any, any sense of the time period when your ancestors were sold into Montgomery? into Alabama? I don't know the exact time. What I do know is that my heritage is a mixed heritage. So the white owner of much of the land took up relationships with my African ancestor, um, uh, mother. And so I do, I am able to trace that Anglo side. I'm not as easily able to trace the side of my African heritage. We haven't been able to find 
everything we need to find to fully identify her and her ancestry. But we do know she was of African descent. Mm, okay. Wow. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, in, in the research that I've done, again, for this next book, one of the things I'm learning about the, the migration patterns and the slave trading patterns is that most likely, well, I shouldn't say most, but many of the people who were enslaved down in Alabama came after the, the end of the transatlantic slave trade, because Alabama wasn't really formed until that, that latter part of the 1700s, early 1800s. And it was 1808 that the transatlantic slave trade ended. And so it was after that point that most of the people in the deep South actually then were sold into the deep South. And that would actually mean that they were not brought directly from Africa, but that your ancestors likely descend from people who were, who were based in either Virginia or North Carolina or Kentucky, but were sold into, um, into the deep South in that in that downriver, what I call the downriver slave trade, we might all be related. <laughs> you never know. We never know. I have I have so many questions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take us to a break, and I want to say thank you so much for sharing your stories. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Have you ever been on a pilgrimage? The very first one I ever did changed my life forever. We do a lot of things here on Freedom Road, but the most powerful of all is pilgrimage. Freedom Road journeys roll through cohesive stories and help us understand better how the world broke and what it will take to be whole. Our absolute favorite thing is to leverage the power of pilgrimage to strengthen groups' capacity to do justice in their communities. Check out the show notes for this episode. Click the link to learn more about Freedom Road pilgrimages and contact us through the website if you'd like to join us on Freedom Road. We need to remember that in Virginia, the slave trade went all the way up until emancipation because we're talking about Virginia. Virginia is the deep south. So because of the fact that Virginia was doing that all the way up until it became illegal, you still had people coming from there that were dispersed into places like Alabama. So my, my point of connection is to, is to be clear that it's at the embarkment of where people first came that we have the genesis of what became an industry. So there's a direct connection to that moment, particularly in Virginia, that has so many people of African descent dispersed all during the enslavement period. Are you saying that when we talk about the end of the transatlantic slave trade, we have to understand the reality that actually there are, there are slave ships that are documented to have come into the U.S., 
after the end of the slave trade, even all the way up until 1850, I think, is or 18 in the 1850s, maybe even one or two that came in after the end of the Civil War. And so are you saying that Virginia was the main point of entry for, for those slave ships? The industry was still going on during that period of time. And so you may have had second generation, you may have had third generations, but the Genesis is 1619 and the industry of dispersing those who were here already and those who may have come in the later years, but then those who, who were still here, yeah. second and third generations and following were still being exported to other parts of the country. That, that's the point that I'm making. Vincent, can you tell us what you know about the lives of Antony and Isabella Tucker and their child, William? Well, we don't know much about um, Antony and Isabella once they were taken off of the, the white line and sold for cargo or so, and supplies. But we do know that their son, William, you told the story earlier about coming on to Point Comfort, which is... Fort Monroe slash Hampton, Virginia. And we know that, uh, and we believe that they were living at, at the plantation that Captain William Tucker owned, which was called Bluebird Gap Farm. Some people have said that they traveled north to other parts of the state, but we can't find any documentation of that. And even uh, after young William was born in 1624, we know that he had children because that's why we're here. But we can't find any history right now. But I tell you what our family, what we're doing, we not only have hired a researcher, but uh, my sister Wanda is also a researcher. And we're just working the story backwards. And we have touching areas that no one else has talked about. And we're not looking to, you know, write a book or or make money off of this story, but we want the truth. And sometimes it takes time. And, um, you know, as we get further into the story, I'll share more about our history, what we have found uh, recently. But there's not much information that we can share about Antony and Isabella from that point. Do you know the, what the lives were like for the original first 20 and odd um, Africans who stepped onto the soil? What was slavery like or, or indentured servitude like um, at that time? And one thing that struck me in my research was that they, the, even the white folk, the folk, the folk from, you know, the English, they weren't expecting to get enslaved people. They weren't, they weren't asking for that. The, the ship just came and they had to figure out what they're going to do with them, which is likely why they were not enslaved, um, Antony and Isabel, that they were they were indentured. Is that right? Well, we grew up uh, knowing that or hearing the story that they were indentured servants. Um, mm -hmm. But then uh, over the last four or five years, we, again, we are hearing conflicted stories. And so we're, we're standing on what we believe. And, and some of that is we don't know, but uh, but your point well taken. You take folks, uh, these two people, individuals from Africa, and you bring them to a foreign land and language. It was very hard. Not only was it horrible uh, being on that ship, um, but can you imagine not looked upon as, as as a human being? You're just cargo, a commodity, you know, that's being sold and traded for. 
and and used for labor. Just me imagining those uh, 20 and odd, how many of those women were raped? How many of those people were just abused uh, because they could, could, could not understand the language, you know, the English language at that point? It, it's hard to really grasp that without tearing up sometimes, but it was horrible. But they paved the way. They made a way for us. And that's important. That's why we're here today. Yeah. And one of the things that I found is that indentured servitude, we like we think of it as like a job. Somebody had a job and then they they finished their job when their indenture was finished. That's not how it was, that actually it was brutal. And the the state of the people while indentured was basically slavery. The only difference between indenture and actual slavery was that the indenture had a time limit. And at the end of it, sometimes people would actually get set up you know, to be able to carry forward their lives from there, being offered lands like Anthony Johnson, who came into the same area a little bit later and was given land and tools in order to establish himself. But it wasn't always that way. But but certainly the, the difference between indenture and slavery was not the quality of the time. It was brutal for everybody, but it was just a time-limited time for indenture. Do you have a sense of of the... Well, I know that you're working your way backwards now, but I'm wondering if there's if there's a sense of the quality of life, the struggle that your family had to experience as they were moving through time and space on that same land right there in Virginia for so many centuries. So let me let me tell you about a story that we recently discovered. Yeah. Okay. So there was a family member that lived on the plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plantation was uh, started in 1622, according to local records. So my sister, Wanda, did research, and through stories uh, or oral history of the family, we found that uh, one of our family members was living at the plantation, and because he could not, we were told that he was married to a white woman. And because he could not show his papers, he was sold back into slavery, which told us that either he was free or he came through as an indentured servant. So sold back into slavery to a family in Alawite County. So my sister went to Alawite and she found the family descendants of the slave owner. And uh, she's reached out to them, you know, to to com- not only to confirm the story, but to get more of this history. So that's the type of research we're doing because we want to know. We did find out that later he was able to build a raft for he and his family and travel from Alawite County uh, uh, through across the James River from Alawite back over into the Hampton Roads area or into Hampton. So um, that was incredible to hear. Wow. Do you know what years he lived? Like what was around the time that he was he was alive? We were thinking that this was the early 1800s at this point. Oh, wow. Um, but, wow. but we're not 100% sure. 
Okay. Wow. Well, I want to know more about that when you find it. I mean, there's real history there. Uh, for my ancestors were on the eastern shore of Maryland, and the law there for people of African descent at one point in the late 1600s made it so that if a white woman married a black man, an enslaved African man, or not a free man, but an, an enslaved African man, then she herself would become a slave. And if a free black man married a white woman, he would be indentured for seven years, um, starting around 1715 or so. So that, and, and Maryland got almost all of its laws from Virginia. Basically, they just mirrored Virginia, usually about two years later. Angelique and I were talking about this when we were together. Now, there's this conversation that is rising right now in our nation about reparation. It's one that we've talked about before. There was a, a Congress of Black men who, who met back in the 1970s, and they actually put forward a proposal for reparation. And I think for the next couple of decades, there was argument about it in, in the United States, in the atmosphere. People would just, you know, at conferences and at gatherings, people would be talking about reparation. And usually they would fall on the level, if they were white, almost definitely they'd be saying, no, reparations are not necessary. And I even heard some black evangelicals talk about how reparations is not something we should be asking for or fighting for. But now, now in today's United States of America, in the center of our political debate for the election 2020, we actually have candidates who are proposing on their platforms particular forms of reparation. Some are proposing, you know, X trillion dollars. Others are proposing like Marshall plans and things like that. But I, I'm wondering, what do you guys think? What do you think of this current conversation? What do you agree with and what do you think is missing? Well, for me, I too have heard uh, Nancy Pelosi and, and those other Congress members talking about stuff, you know, different things, free college tuition, community development programs, and uh, 0% loans for home, home buyers. I do think that a monetary uh, award is, is needed in addition to other things. And I noticed that the way this country work is, if, if there's a program that's set up, all it takes is the next uh, administration to kill it. That's for real. And, and then you have to stall all over again. Hello, somebody. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's for real. so give me the money first. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just and, settle and that. that. Let's that, just that's settle right. that. Yeah. Wow. Because okay, America was built upon the backs of slavery. And they, they used us to gain money, to build wealth. And that's something that's always kept us down or kept us behind you know, was, was finances and, and economics. Hey, we always had to pay the higher percent of interest compared to our counterparts. I mean, and on and on the story goes. So uh, that is something that I would say. Uh, a dollar amount, I know that from the 2010 census, you had about 14% of uh, African-Americans that made up the country. So about 42 million folks. So, hey, give us all four or five million dollars. <laughs> hey, that, there you go. Hey, listen, what is four? We'd be good. We'd be good. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a start because one thing I know for sure that those other people 
have already set up a scheme or some way to get that money out of our pockets and back into theirs. So we would certainly have to do some, uh, provide some education of how to hold on to that money and even invest that money as individuals. But it's, I, I do think that that would be a start along with other programs, because listen, if those who have uh, suffered with PTSD and we can see those who went to Vietnam War and even um, those wars over in Iraq lately, look at how they were messed up for being there for six months, maybe a year, maybe two tours. What, what about those who suffered for 400 years? What about those who were not only taken away from their family, but, but t- taken away and never knew them again? and move, travel from place to place. There's really not a set monetary value anyone can put on that and taking the, the life of, of, uh, of individuals for no cause. So can you imagine the mental state we're in? So yes, we're going to need some help and lots of it. But let's start with that money. <laughs> I really like it. I really <laughs> love that. I mean, honestly, I love it because, first of all, I do think it's a both and. And and I love it also because it recognizes it recognizes a large swath of the need. The reality that the need is not only a check, but it does include a check. Angelique, what do you think about this? I mean, I know that Bread for the World right now is in, in, in conversations, and, and there's a larger conversation happening in the church. What are some of your thoughts? Yes, yeah, so for me, it's an ethical issue. I mean, sure, we need to talk about the other matters, but it's an ethical issue. I mean, when you really, really consider 250 years of free labor, over 250 years of genocide, over 250 years of crimes against humanities that would clearly be debated in The Hague and in the international courts. When you consider what was stolen from people of African descent, all of these things are crimes against humanities. This is ethical challenges. This is not just a conversation about a check. This is a conversation about crimes against humanity. And this is a conversation about criminal behavior. This is a conversation about unethical understandings of what it means to be humane in the UN Court of Human Rights. We have to have that kind of conversation. There are monies that were taken from us. There was land that was taken from us. There was identities taken from us. That needs to go to the international court. That needs to come to the courts of the United States. And we need to have a legal and ethical conversation about what has happened to people of African descent. Yeah. Now, it's not just a domestic issue. It's a global issue. Yeah. It's just a part of conversations on the global rep- reparatory yes. movement. Yes. It's been the Caribbean brothers and sisters who've been at the leaders leadership of this. They are the ones who have argued with the European Union over the last 10 to 15 years who are now having breakthroughs with European nations around how do European nations build out frameworks to deal with this, this legacy of criminal behavior. This, this is not just a conversation about just the right thing. It's a conversation about crime and genocide. Moreover, we're having conversations about Africa. Africa's land was raped and pillaged. It was colonialized. It was assaulted. 
Here again, these are crimes against humanity. We're talking about genocide. Now, all of this for me, as a minister of the gospel, is an ethical and biblical and theological challenge. The Bible is really, I think, very clear. One can trace the legacy of not just restorative justice or reconciliation, but reparatory justice. There are illustrations of how we can talk about this in the Old Testament especially, but we also can cite New Testament texts. So at a biblical, theological, ethical, and legal point of entry, we must have this conversation. This is the only way we can really deal with the evil, not just the sin, but the evil that has been put upon people of African identity. We have to talk about the spiritual and we have to talk about the temporal. And until we're able to do that, this country this world will not be able to be at the point it needs to be for the future of all children, not just children of African descent, but for all children to have an opportunity to have an inclusive life together. That is so, I mean, I love how you put that. There's something in, in there's a nugget in what you said that um, I'm going to be taking with me for the whole rest of the day. All of what you said was awesome. But this particular, you said that it's not just about the sin, it's about the evil. Like that. Just think about that for a minute, because what you're talking there is in our normal conversations, particularly when they're when they are black, white conversations or or basically conversations with white folk about reparations, people, the normal argument that you get is an argument of, oh, well, it wasn't my sin. It wasn't I didn't own slaves or my family didn't own slaves. Why should we be able to or be made to pay pay for something we didn't do? Blah, blah, blah. So it's a question of sin. But when you think about it, in terms of repair of the actual evil, that there has been evil spit up into our world and it is still running rampant on the land, which is why we have the world we have today, why we have all the violence that we have today with the gun craziness and and also the children in cages. And we have a land that was born out of violence and in it went out to play and it's still playing because we haven't cleaned it up and it did a number on us and we need we need repair we need we need health we need healing so i love what you did you just what you did in some ways was to flip the script and to say this is not just about you and whether or not you own your guilt this is about a very real reality a very real reality of evil that is running rampant in the world that we need to deal with. Yeah, and part of the evil, uh, Lisa Sharon and, and my brother Tucker, the part of the challenge is, I don't, you know, people say, you know, this didn't have to do with my inheritance or my lineage. Well, that's just not true. Every single one of us, for better or for worse, are benefiting from the labor and the crimes put upon people of African identity, all of us. You don't get Wall Street without free labor. You don't get land without free labor. Yeah. You don't get monetary currency without free labor. Hello. That's what we're talking about. All of us need to confess and to understand that today's so-called global economy was built on the global economy of enslavement. That's right. And until we have that kind of analysis that everyone has a has a drawback to that period and that the things that we have now the so-called richest nation in the world 
all has everything to do with over 250 years of free labor and crimes against humanity. All of us. And that's the kind of reality we must deal with. And that is why I use the term evil and not just sin. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So I have a question. How do we bring the church into this conversation of evil when many of much of what they did felt that it was for the good? They, they felt that blacks, because of their color, were in sin, that we were evil, we were bad. They were white Christians. And even today, believe that story. Yeah. And actually, I'd like to also I mean, let, let's problematize it even more, if you don't mind, because another piece of like pushback that I often hear is, well, you can't hold people accountable for laws that didn't exist at the time that or you can't hold them legally accountable for for slavery when it was lawful, right? It was legal to have slavery or people just didn't even know, not even legally, like ethically, the ethics of the time said this was fine. Well, I mean, I want to say one thing to that is the reality that there were people who were fighting the legality and the ethics of slavery at the time that it was at its height and also at the time that it was beginning. So there's been a constant theological witness against slavery from the very beginning of it in the United States, in, in not just the United States, but on this North American soil. And I would imagine stretching into, in fact, I know this to be true, stretching even into the beginning of this, of enslavement in the Caribbean and into South America. So there's always been a theological witness against it. The legality of it is questionable. But even when we talk now about repair, that's why I think that the focus has to be focused on what needs to be done to repair what has been broken as opposed to whether or not it was legal. I, I'm interested, though, to hear, and Angelique, from your perspective as one who's been dealing with this, um, both in the church and also at the UN. Yeah, so it seems to me that the church must assume its leadership role. I mean, we can clearly verify that it was the churches that brought the theology and the ideology of enslavement. We justified it. You go to America Castle in Ghana today, and you will find the place of no return for people who were enslaved from Ghana. Just above the dungeon is the church. 
It's the church that was worshiping there, praying to the God that they knew, and at the bottom of the church, enslaving people and sending them across the ocean. I mean, that's just one glaring example of the contradiction of the faith, okay? Wow. We can go down yeah. to Syriatum over the hundreds of years and see where the church has espoused yeah. inequitable policies. That's one reason why you get independent African-American churches like the one I come out of, the National Baptist Convention USA Incorporated. We left that. We offered not people want to say, well, you know, black churches are about social justice. No, black churches are about correcting ecclesiology. Black churches had their own period of reformation. We talk about the reformation of Luther. We talk about the reformation of those in Switzerland. But let's have a real conversation about the reformation of historic black churches. Well, now historic black churches were formed because the ecclesiology of white Christendom was flawed at best. And we went and created another institution that we thought was more representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of people want to have that conversation. They just want to relegate and marginalize historic black churches as social justice. Well, that is incorrect. So we need to start with the historic black church's response to say, what is the ecclesiology of white churches today? And how do they learn from that Reformation period? How do they learn from the historic black churches of Ethiopia, the Orthodox church and the Coptic church, where we know that Jesus was taken to Cairo at the time of his birth to escape terror. There is much for people to learn about leading as opposed to being defensive about how we correct ecclesiology and ideologies around reparatory justice. Let us look to the people who've been leading it. A to the men. <laughs> yes, you took us to church. You really did. I, I'm kind of getting my, my my church fan out right now. And <laughs> I'm about to do a little dance here. But no, for real, for real, that actually, what you talked about was you talked about the need for the churches to lead. And I, I think that that's actually really true. I was, interestingly enough, I was recently at the Kennedy Center, just there with some friends at an event. And we sat down to lunch and we started talking about family history. And of course, mine went right back to to Maryland. We were talking about this. And the woman sitting next to us kind of piped in because she's a church warden and she's a church warden in Maryland. And I was talking about how I just learned something that it was the church wardens who were responsible to sell the people into indentured servitude if they had broken one of the misogynization laws. And so if somebody had an affair or a child or got married even, legally married to a person of African descent or you know, across cross-racial in Maryland circa 1700, they would have to be indentured for seven years and their children would have to be indentured for 21 and then later 31 years just because they loved somebody who was not like them, who was the other race. And she told me, yes, it was the church warden's responsibility to actually manage the indentures of all of the indentured servants that were ordered to serve by the courts. Is that not like, so talk about responsibility, responsibility. If we only took that responsibility 
and fully repented, what could not this world look like? How right now, when you look back at, you know, the reverberations of slavery, of enslavement or indentured servitude for your family, people need to understand that slavery didn't just happen right then. I mean, it shows up in every generation. Yes, it does. How does your family experience the reverberations of their indentured servitude and, and enslavement or at least exploitation? And I'll give you an example. So one of the things I'm finding in my research on my own family is that, oh my gosh, like family separation is something that for us on three, at least three branches of our family is serial. And I think back to my third great grandmother, Leah, who had, um, according to family oral history, 17 children, but only 12 that we can count after the Civil War, which means probably five of her children were sold downriver or died, right? Because she was, she was based in South Carolina and maybe Virginia before that. She experienced the loss of five children. And then the next generation, mothers died in childbirth because they didn't have access to health care. And then the next generation, actually that, yeah, the next generation, the great migration happened. And so in order to escape the oppression of racialized terror, they fled South Carolina and found their way to some level of freedom in Philadelphia. But that meant separating from their family forevermore again. And now in our current generation, what we find is that we're like choosing it. Like, you know, people get mad at each other and it's just like being separated from the family. It's just like no big deal. It's just, it's like, well, it's, I mean, it's a big deal, but you know, we can handle it. We've had it before. You know what I mean? So so there's there's like chosen family separation that's actually happening in this generation. And it's it is it is brutal. It's brutal. And I see that. I see that reverberation of slavery ringing through our generations. So that's what I mean. On my father's side of the family, most of my family still lives in the very treacherous economic plight of Cleveland, Ohio in some of the most desperate areas in that urban sector. And then on my mother's side of the family, I have many that are in the rural context that are still living in challenged situations, although many of them have done better. So I would say that as recent as just the other day when the new figures came out on hunger and poverty levels, we see the persistent, really the persistent high numbers of people of African descent of any group including our Hispanic, Latino friends, white friends, et cetera, Asian friends, of the high numbers, disproportionate numbers of people of African descent living with hunger and poverty. This is a direct correlation to the period of enslavement. We must look at the historic root causes for that. Those numbers continue to stay high. The numbers stay high in Africa. This goes all the way back to the historic root causes of colonialism, enslavement, and all of the different zones in the United States that have yet to be affected by equitable policies and economic programs whereby people of African descent have been able to, if you will, enter into the mainstream of the society. 
Until we deal with that in a systematic way, not just case by case, but in a systematic way, we will continue to see these kinds of stubborn vestiges of the period in question. Further, we need to remember that the wealth gap and the income gap is still very much high disparity in those numbers. And those are the real indicators of how far we have not come in terms of being in an equitable society for people of African descent. That's exactly right. I was actually, one thing that that comes to mind is that after the end of the Civil War, you actually had, we had about a decade, like nine years of real flourishing. Like our families flourished. We elected over a thousand people to elected office. We built societies that exist to this day or iterations of them. And there's a way that we began to organize, but we had the terror of Jim Crow that came down upon us and actually then had something that most most of the diaspora did not experience except for us, which was the terror of Jim Crow that set us back even further. So, so I, I mean, it reminds me of the need not only to talk about or to think about the mechanism or the, the economic machine of slavery itself, but why it existed in the first place. It existed in order to prop up, secure, and maintain the economic supremacy of whiteness, of Europe to begin with, and then white Americans afterwards. And after slavery ended, those mechanisms just shape-shifted. It became not slavery, but it became mass incarceration. It became peonage and convict leasing. And now today, and, and hunger the whole way through, not being able to own our own land or very, very few being able to own their own land and having to share crop and, and the rest. And so, yeah, so I see that. I see that, Angelique, and I see how it would end that we get to the point now where we are still at the bottom of many of these indicators of poverty and hunger in the world. If I may add to listen, Sharon, just very quickly, one of the other things that really hurt people of African descent wasn't just what we both have just said, but they remove security, homeland security from people of African descent in the South. When the new president came in after Abraham Lincoln and the Congress met, there was a deal that was made with the Southern leaders. And they agreed that those soldiers, that those soldiers would leave from the Union Army. One of the reasons why we have the kinds of election of black officials on Capitol Hill is because we were protected to vote, although it was black men that were voting, black women weren't, but those black men went out and voted. And we had historic numbers of representation here in the U.S. Congress. But we were protected to vote. We were protected to have some of the benefits that we rightfully deserved after all the the centuries of enslavement. So not only was it the policies, it was also the removal of security. And all of that played into the assault, literally the physical and mental assault of people of African descent. 
So Angelique, you know, you talk in terms of pan-Africanism a lot and your work is pan, literally pan-African, even in the, in the title of your work at Bread for the World. So I want to ask you, why is it important that we understand ourselves in the context of the global pan-African community as, as people of African descent in the United States rather than just African-American? So there are two reasons for that. One is being pan-African means we recognize that we're children of Africa, that despite the history, this chapter, this chapter was not always there, but this chapter of colonialism, this chapter of enslavement, this chapter of neo-colonialism, that was not always the case. People of African identity were kings and queens. Not everything was perfect on the continent. We're not dealing with rose-colored glasses, but one thing we did have was our own identity on the continent of Africa. Our names are taken away. We were stripped and we were recalibrated for enslavement and labor. That's what it really became. So for us as people of African descent to understand that that is our legacy too. That's a positive celebration of identity of who people of African descent are to recognize that we are children of Africa. Now, let me say something more about that. Africa is on the rise. And for us to be a part of this movement, the African Union a few years ago said, we have a sixth region. And that sixth region are people of African descent. The diaspora is not just the 55 nations of Africa. Now there are 56, and that is the, the descendants of African identity all over the world. So there is a whole recalibration globally for a new economic order, a new identity order, and a new economic order, period, for the world. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the identity of kings and queens that I know were before the colonial period. We have a proud legacy in the diaspora. We have a proud legacy on the continent of Africa. We need to flip the switch on the narrative. No longer do we need the narrative of just being oppressed and put upon. We have always been a people of agency. And one of the reasons we have been is because of our faith. We have always resisted in our souls. And that has to continue. Moreover, we need to understand that Africa is the future, not just for people of African descent, but for the world. Everyone has a cell phone. Everyone has all this technology. Where do they think that fuel is coming from? It's coming from the continent of Africa. Where are the fields of harvest and food and so forth on the continent of, they're on the continent of Africa. When we talk about climate, climate change, we're talking about looking to the future of Africa in many of the parts of the world. So that's why we're so attractive to China in part. So I'm just saying we have to wake up and understand that there is a future and there's been a proud past of being related to the identity of the continent of Africa. That is awesome. I mean, Vincent, do you have any thoughts on that that you'd like to add? Well, my mouth is wide open. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, I think that, right, we don't really, we don't normally talk about, and especially if our identity has been African-American, we don't normally think about ourselves in, in that relationship to the globe. How does, what is that, how does that ring for you? Well, I, I think it's a wonderful uh, thing that her organization is doing and promoting. And I'm certainly interested in more of that because we do need to be reminded of, of where we came from. And all that um, 
all of that, not just, you know, the king and queen, but also the value of the land, the value of the people, you know, and, and, and what, what was offered to the rest of the world coming out of the, you know, that great continent. And um, so I'm, I'm in, I am in awe right now. Because, um, you know, to invite a preacher <laughs> to the panel well. that's so fired up and knowledgeable, and I can't write this stuff down fast enough. I got notes all over my paper. Oh, that's that's fabulous. It, wow. It, and, and it is. There's one thing that I see what shows up in, in America that I really don't like. It's the mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And the mindset of lack of trust. Not trusting one another. I've been in business for 30 years now. You know, I've uh, located part of my business in a predominantly African-American area of the state of Virginia, and it's a lower income area. But I wanted to settle here because I wanted to make a difference in our community. And I think I have, but it's so much more work to do because I, I noticed a lack of trust. And the comparison of, you know, uh, a, a black employer versus a white employer. And uh, I, I noticed that we just don't get the same respect. So I do think that what has taken place over 400 years and 250 years of slavery, it has altered our mind. And we, we have to begin to uh, work on that on a massive scale so we can, however reparation ends up, that we have a, a positive mindset. Even if it doesn't work out, we need a positive mindset to move forward, to realize who we are. Yeah, I get that. In fact, I think that part of the part of the power, right, of Black Panther is that it showed us who we are. And not only Black Panther, I think I've been talking about it ever since the movie came out, but but also when we what you're saying or the th- I'm sorry, what you're saying hits me because the question of trust is central. We can't build strong economies within within the African diaspora and certainly not within the United States if we don't even trust each other. How then can we expect others to trust us if we don't trust each other? And that that trust, that lack of trust for each other is not necessarily born out of experience. It is more often born out of the biases, the implicit unconscious biases that we are steeped in from the time that we are reared as little people watching cartoons and watching advertisements on TV and seeing most of the people who don't look like us and people who own businesses have not looked like us. And I think that I'm actually even talking more out of my generational experience because I think now of the images of of the moguls and the people who are amazing business people and the excellence that Angelique talked about that is indicative of of black business and and black organizing there's excellence and intentionality that goes with every breathing thing and so many of the things that have been created that make American culture what it is were created by black excellence and yet we need to be healed that's part of the healing that needs to happen not only for us I think but for all Americans all people who have been steeped in the mindset of the colonial mindset to see ourselves as we truly are which is fully human that's all just fully human able created with the capacity to help 
steward the world. So thank you so much for that, Vincent. I appreciate that. I want to ask if you could paint a vision of the United States 400 years from now, a U.S. where we've done the hard work to repair all that race broke in us and in the world. What would or might that world look like? I think 400 years from now, the United States would be 100% people of color, multicultural, mixed race, uh, very different. Wow. And in order to have that happen, you would imagine actually love not having boundaries the way that it had for nearly 300 years in Virginia, right? That's right. With the misogynization laws that, that actually we would have learned to deeply love each other without evil boundaries. Wow, that's, that's really, that's powerful. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., and this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action in the public square. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. Like seriously, that's a pinky swear. (laughs) We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first week of every month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.